Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Harold Drake for a conversation about the Roman Emperor Constantine I's adoption. Some may call it a conversion. In the episode, Dr. Drake and I speak more about terminology and phrasing. Constantine's adoption of Christianity. Amongst other things in Constantine's reign, he's known for founding the city of Constantinople, which served as the capital of what many contemporaries would call the Byzantine Empire. Dr. Drake is a Roman historian. He's Professor Emeritus at the University of California, Santa Barbara, based in the U.S. He's the author of many publications over his career, including the books A Century of Miracles, Christians, Pagans, Jews, and the Supernatural, 312-410, which was published by Oxford University Press, and Constantine and the Bishops, The Politics of Intolerance, which was published by Johns Hopkins University Press. Welcome to the call, Hal. Thanks. It's good to be here. So we're talking today about Roman Emperor Constantine's conversion or adoption, uh, and we'll probably get into that uh, kind of the nuance of the of the the phrasing in in this chat. Um, but we're speaking about his eventual adoption of Christianity as a religion, as a faith. Can you uh, start with an overview of who Emperor Constantine was? Uh, yes, he's uh, so he's in the early fourth century, and he had actually the longest reign since the first Christian emperor. Uh, sorry, first Roman emperor was the Emperor Augustus. Mm-hmm. Um, Constantine ruled for more than thirty years, and that might be the most important thing about him. Um, if if he had ruled only for a couple of years, you don't know what would have happened. But when you have a ruler, someone ruling that long, it means a whole generation has grown up knowing this man as as their ruler and his ideas as their ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fourth century is, uh, a, and Constantine in particular, is a traditional turning point, not just in Roman history, but in in Western history. Uh, and it's because of Constantine's uh, traditional conversion by by virtue of a miracle that he he witnessed a a flaming cross in the sky, promising him a victory in a battle that he was about to fight. And the traditional story is he won the battle and became a Christian because of that. Um, one of the big changes in our scholarship has been the growth of the field of religious studies um, and a re- as a result of that we don't think of conversion anymore as as something that happens um, with the snap of your fingers it's a it's a long process of preceding us being socialized in the community which is which is which is why I, I've taken calling it adoption because in our language conversion, makes you think of something instant and final. And so there's been a couple of centuries of fighting about, well, just how Christian was Constantine because he did this and, and a modern Christian wouldn't do that. If you see what I mean, it's, it's just confused the issue. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, if, if I go on for just a minute. Yeah, yeah please. The, yeah. Question, the question for two centuries has been, 
was Constantine sincerely converted to Christianity? And scholars argued that was the seminal question. Um, and what I've argued is it's the wrong question. Very few people today would 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 doubt that he was a, became a Christian. I think the real question has been what kind of Christian did he become? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can explain what I mean by that if you if you want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and let's um, let's let's get get to that. Let's circle back because I want to I want to create some more background then to work our way into this epiphany or moment where he um, he's in battle and he sees the flaming flaming uh, cross in the sky. And so I want to get there and speak about the you know the different uh, what uh, branch of Christianity was he, etc. Um, so just for more background, then where was he? Where was he born, and what year? He was born, of course, there's, we don't have a birth date for him. We do know where he was born, uh, which was at Nyssus in the Balkans. It's the modern city of, of uh, Nish in, in Serbia. Mm-hmm. Um, his most prominent mon- monument now is a pyramid of skulls <laughs> dating back to a battle, I, I forget when, in the Middle Ages. But mm-hmm. uh, so... He, he he is one of a of of a line of emperors who sort of pulled the empire back from the brink of disaster in the third century. Uh, the you'd say the Roman Empire traditionally starts with the assassination of Julius Caesar and uh, the succession of his adopted son, actually a great nephew named Octavian, mm-hmm. who became the Emperor Augustus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Rome, emperors ruled Rome, so that's around, well, the defeat of Antony and Cleopatra, which everybody knows that story, but that occurred in 31 BC in our our uh, uh, reckoning. Uh, and so Constantine is roughly three... <clears throat> Sorry, three and a half centuries after Augustus, mm-hmm. uh, and a great number of changes had occurred in the nature of of the Roman government, but it still called itself um, the Republic, even though it had been run by mm-hmm. emperors for centuries. Um, in the West, it continues down to sometime in the fifth century, uh, which is what we call the fall of Rome. In the East, it goes on for another thousand years, centered on the city that Constantine founded in the East, named after himself Constantinople, um, which is we now call Istanbul. Uh, that change occurred only after World War One, um, but that maybe help you help you see where where government was located in the East. So, so Constantine is this pivotal figure. Um, for looking more eastward in in, mm-hmm. in Roman governance, as well as for adopting Christianity, which are the two hallmarks of what we now call Byzantine history, and that's because uh, Constantinople was founded on the ancient city of Byzantium. So that's why we call it Byzantine history. They still call themselves Romans. Uh, and it's misleading in a way for us to think of them as a foreign civilization. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know if that gives you enough context. Or... It, it does. It's excellent, Hal. Did he ever, in his reign, did he ever rule from Rome? Um, he was he was um, brought up. His father was one of the rulers in a group that is called the Tetrarchy because there were four of them. The main emperor was a man named Diocletian, who uh, is usually remembered negatively because he started the the um, last and most uh, persistent cre- uh, persecution of Christians. He started it in the year 303, and it doesn't formally end until the year 313. So um, that's part of what makes this period seem so miraculous that the last persecuting emperor is succeeded by the first Christian emperor. And it just seems like history changes. Um, but um, Constantine's father was the, uh, the tetrarch who ruled in what's now France and Belgium and Britain. Constantine actually was raised at the court of Diocletian. <clears throat> that was in the east, in the the city of uh, Nicomedia, which is just across from from where Constantinople is now, or Istanbul is now. So he grew up in the east, but when he, um, when his father died, um, he was passed over as, as the succeeding emperor. And there are arguments about that. I think it's because Diocletian wanted to uh, establish a different way for creating emperors rather than just a hereditary rule. But uh, Constantine was released, went to his father who was campaigning in Britain at the time. This was in the year um, 306 and got to his father before his death. And the army, which had become a major factor in the... uh, selection of of Roman emperors, his father's army hailed Constantine as the new emperor. So that touched off a a touch-and-go period that um, we don't really need to get into, but that's part of what's going on in 312. Constantine is, is marching to war against another one of these point in time if you were to describe it in basic terms the demarcation of the Roman Empire then so when he's now ruling how would you describe that on a map well it's it's all of the Mediterranean um, uh, from and it stretches from Britain uh, all the way to what is now Iraq um, mm-hmm. so it's the if you 
I forget now the exact mileage, but the, the distance from Britain to Iraq is roughly uh, equivalent to um, the, ter- the, the 48 states, about 3,000 miles. <clears throat> In the north, it goes all the way to the Rhine River. And in the south, it includes um, um, North Africa. It, it never particularly went to South Africa, uh, you know, beyond sub, Sub-Saharan Africa, except it included Egypt. And Egypt at that time went all the way down to Sudan. So it's, it's a huge chunk of real estate. And you have to keep in mind that they didn't have telephones, they didn't have telegraphs. Um, communication was was always a problem. Just getting a message to the emperor um, took weeks, depending on where he was. So late Roman emperors like Constantine, starting from, say, the middle of the third century, spent very little time actually in Rome, because Rome was too far away from the action. And it's in the fourth century that that Milan uh, starts be becoming becoming the the place where emperors, when they're in Italy at all, where they reside, because it's easier to get to the hot spots on the other side of the Alps from from Milan than it is from Rome. Um, so Constantine uh, was in Rome when he defeated the the then ruler of Rome in 312. Um, but he 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 spent mm-hmm. very little time there. Uh, he didn't come back until um, 320, uh, 325 when he celebrated its, his 20th anniversary of rule, and that was and that was I think the last time he was actually in physically in the city of Rome. How would you describe his father's? religious orientation and how would you describe Constantine's religious orientation before Christianity, before his adoption of Christianity? Yeah, that's an interesting question because um, um, a major source for all of this has really colored our view of the of the period is uh, the bishop of, um, of Caesarea in in what's now Israel, Caesarea Maritima, and his, his name was Eusebius. So he's Eusebius of Caesarea. Uh, after Constantine died, wrote a life of Constantine that is is still the major written source for Constantine's reign. But we're now very much aware of uh, of the Christian lens through which he looked at Constantine. So he will tell you that uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and, and, and the other major source for the period so a Latin author named Lactantius uh, only have good things to say about Constantine's father because Constantine was the emperor when they were writing. Um, but he he was the Constantius was his name, and he was the uh, emperor in Gaul, which is now France, Belgium. Um, and he he had to enforce the persecution edicts when they came out. But the 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 
standard story is he he only did the minimum of what he had to do. Uh, he tore down a couple of churches and let it go at that. Um, that's partially because there weren't that many Christians in Gaul at that time. The the major center of Christianity was in the Eastern Empire. Still, the, there was a big Christian community in in Italy, and there was another one in North Africa. Um, so his his father is is handled with kid gloves, and um, on the basis of coinage, which the Romans used very, very effectively as a means of communication with their subjects, and and they put deities on their on their coinage to show um, to show their religious orientation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his father and Constantine himself are both connected with the sun god Saul in in um, in Latin Helios in in Greece. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the particular version of the sun at the time of Constantine was was uh, Saul Invictus, the unconquered or inconquerable sun. Um, I think the biggest difference, if I'm not wandering too far away from your no, no. from your question, is uh, if you want to understand this period, you have to think yourself into a time when deity intervened in human affairs on a day-to-day basis. This is very, very different from the way we think about things. We, uh, so it was often felt that you were only going to experience victory in a battle if you had the right God on your side. And the gods determined that battle, which is what's so significant about Constantine's conversion story, seeing, having this vision in which he's told, with this sign you will conquer, the sign being the cross. And then he fought the battle and won, according to the standard account, that's what led to his conversion. Um, but in fact, there's a, a lot of similarities going on between uh, classical philosophy in particular and, and Christianity at this point, uh, converging on the idea that there's, there's a single greatest deity and even um, one deity who's known by a bunch of different names in different places. So it, it, our standard view of, um, I'm trying to avoid the word pagans, but I'll explain why, is that, um, well, I, I sometimes say they were the only people having fun in the whole mm. Roman Empire. Mm. Um, but um, they're, they're the pictures we get from movies, you know, these lusty, degenerate, people who can't stand Christians because they're so virtuous. Uh, and, and actually, um, by the fourth century, uh, philosophers and elites in general were, were just as, um, in fact, they, they could regard Christians as being less virtuous than they were. Uh, and less pure as they were, so there, there are all these ideas going around at the time that that seem to um, come to a head with Constantine, and it's now thought that he was 
he was a sun god worshiper before and 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 then the account of that miracle what's so interesting about it is that he sees this cross superimposed over the sun so it's almost symbolically saying this is this is the sun too but a stronger sun uh, but that experience led him into christianity uh, eusebius when he tells the story and he says this would be hard to believe if the emperor himself hadn't told it to me um, the story of the miracle mm-hmm. but eusebius puts it in the context that um, there was all this upheaval usurpers and persecution uh, and Constantine was trying to figure out uh, what he should do and he decided his father of all the emperors uh, was the only one who hadn't um, who hadn't died a horrible death and he decided he wanted to worship the same God his father worshipped um, but he he didn't exactly know what this God was. So you see, Eusebius is fuzzing this up. He can't say Constantine's father was a Christian, but he's sort of blending the story in so that by trying to find his father's God, he finds Christianity. Uh, it's, it, it, it's an absolutely fascinating study, but mm-hmm. uh, I don't want to hold you up too much. No, it's excellent. Um, if, if, how would a scholar define then? So he, it's um, believed that Constantine, prior to converting or adopting Christianity, uh, believed in a sun god. Soul is a is a cognate for that. Um, what? So it, is there a is there a, a name for that kind of religion that a scholar would use? Well, um, probably solar monotheism, although some scholars uh, debate whether that was a true monotheism, uh, and so they call it henotheism. Henos is the Greek word for one, so it's still one godism, but the distinction is they recognize the supremacy of this god without denying the existence of other gods the way Christians and Jews did. But but solar monotheism is sort of the catchword. Okay. Um, and, and an emperor about, well, around 270, named Aurelian, uh, built a temple to the sun god Sol Invictus in Rome. Um, and so that's sort of the period when you start, you can start talking about solar monotheism, although um, Diocletian, the chief emperor who, I mean, who started the persecution, created a dynasty for himself uh, that was labeled after Jupiter, the traditional head of the Roman pantheon, and he called that the Jovian dynasty. Um, but uh, Constantius uh, just chose either sometimes Mars and sometimes Sol Invictus as his sun god. And when you look at Constantine's coins, uh, Sol Invictus is very prominent on them from about uh, roughly 310. Uh, and Sol Invictus doesn't finally disappear until the mid-320s, which is one of the arguments we used to have. Well, how could he be a Christian if the sun god is still on his, his coinage? Um, but if you regard 
what happened to Constantine and what happens in conversion generally as as a much more gradual process that isn't that much of a problem uh, and especially if you think that he's a Roman emperor who who believes he rules over all of his subjects and so that he uses this symbol uh, this is what I have argued um, as a uh, the sun god had become a a kind of common way of of addressing monotheism i've called it a lingua franca mm-hmm. uh, so that uh christians non-christians fascinatingly even jews uh in some fourth century uh, jewish synagogues that have been excavated there are mosaics of the sun god in them which um, aren't supposed to be there because jews don't don't conceive of their gods in, in physical terms. But what I think is going on is is this was a way, as a result of the influence of Constantine, the way of, of Jews to participate in this monotheistic language with the rest of the empire. That's more of an answer than you would. Mm-hmm. It's good. Thank you. Um, can you tell us about his baptism? Um yeah, that's really interesting. He he wasn't Eusebius ends the life of Constantine pretty much with his baptism, which didn't occur until his deathbed uh, in three thirty six, uh, and that was also another thing that scholars used to point to and say, well, this proves he wasn't really a Christian because he wasn't baptized till he died. Mm. Um, in the context. A lot of Christians, well into the fourth century, uh, more Christians were <coughs> were came to Christianity as adults than were born into it. Um, and baptism washed away all of your sins. So the smart money said, put it off as long as you can, <laughs> so you can be sure that when you die, you're you have no sins. Uh, so that, that wasn't all that unusual. Infant baptism was just sort of coming into vogue in the fourth century, or, or becoming more more prevalent. There is interestingly a uh, legend of Constantine that you might have heard of, which um, which has him coming to Rome, fascinating as a persecutor uh, during the reign of a pope named Sylvester Mm -hmm. so roughly around when he comes to Rome in 312 but instead as as a conqueror um, who is who's driving out a persecuting emperor he comes in as a persecutor himself because he has leprosy and uh, he's told by pagan priests that the only way to to uh, cure his leprosy is to take a a bath in the blood of Christian babies. So he's in Rome, uh, ready to do this, and um, he has a vision in this case. It's a vision of Saints Peter and Paul, who are, of course, associated with Rome, telling him to find this guy, and they show him a picture of Pope Sylvester, who's in hiding because of the persecution, 
find this guy and he's the one who can cure you of leprosy. Mm. Uh, he has this vision because he, he decides he just can't go through with, with killing all these Christian babies just to cure himself. And so this, this vision is a reward for something virtuous that he's done. Isn't that a fascinating story? So Sylvester mm-hmm. comes and and explains to him that the, the two people he saw were Peter and Paul, and what they're telling him is that he needs baptism. So Sylvester baptizes Constantine in 312, mm-hmm. and when Constantine goes to the east, he, he gives a rule over the western emperor to, to Pope Sylvester. And that's what popes used for the next thousand years to claim that they were, they had priority over all of the other, all of the kings and and other rulers that had succeeded the Romans. Um, this is hmm. the famous donations of Constantine, and I'm wondering kind of fall, far afield here, but it's it's just a fascinating story because one of us one of the first triumphs of the renaissance and of investigating actually fact rather than accepting everything as dogma was a renaissance scholar named lorenzo valla who proved that the donations of constantine were a ninth century forgery because they mentioned things that hadn't happened until the ninth century and so constantine couldn't have done that in the fourth century okay uh, the the other part of the legend that is important in the West is that Constantine was baptized in the East, and he was baptized by a bishop who uh, Western Christians came to regard as a heretic. So uh, this just sanitized his baptism and said, no, no, it really happened in the West long before that. It's it's just fascinating to study legends and try to line them up with the history and figure out what problems they were addressing. Absolutely. Um, where do you think the evidence uh, sits the most in terms of what uh, donations he made to the church? Well, um, there is an, another um, record called the Book of the Popes that um, has information about every pope. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's fairly fragmentary for the earlier periods, and it's not always reliable. But uh, the Book of the Popes has a list of gifts that Constantine made to churches in um, in Rome, uh, and his church building is probably the biggest thing you could point to um, he uh, he gave the Lateran which was a palace of the emperors he gave that to the Bishop of Rome and really right down to our, our lifetimes even though you know St. Peter's is is across the Tiber on the Vatican Hill uh, until I don't know maybe 50 years ago or less the Lateran was the official residence of the Bishop of Rome. Mm-hmm. And it was only, it's, now it's, it's been transferred, his official re- residence is St. Peter's. But he gave the Lateran 
Uh, he traditionally started the, the first building uh, over what Christians held was the, the burial spot of uh, St. Peter, which is a, on the Vatican Hill across from the Tiber. Uh, the first church of St. Peter's was, was built by Constantine. Mm. Um, and he, he um, particularly uh, in, uh, built churches in his new city of Constantinople, but another sort of remarkable discovery during his reign, shortly after he took control of the East, was um, Christians reclaimed a site that they believed was the site of um, of uh, of Christ's crucifixion and and burial. So uh, Constantine endowed a very important church there uh, that's still called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and that's the reason it's. It's believed to be built over what was Christ's tomb. Uh, so his his church building is is probably one of the the major effects he had on mm-hmm. on the physical presence of Christianity in in the Roman Empire. So if he um, ruled uh, at least a part of his reign from Constantinople, eventually, so he eventually. Um, founds this that that city. Uh, where does Greek Orthodoxy come into play in all this? Because Greek Orthodoxy obviously was very prominent in the East. Uh, yeah, although at that time it was just it was just Christian Orthodoxy. The the big split between Eastern and Western uh, Christianity didn't occur to the Great Schism in the. 11th century, I think it was. Okay. Um, but there, the eastern part of the empire was all, also most heavily influenced by classical philosophical training. Um, and it's, um, it's almost inevitable that Christians wanted to explain their God both to themselves and to others and and that meant they had to do it in the terms of ancient philosophy. Um, this isn't my strong suit. So what, what I usually say is that um, Christian Christianity holds that Christ was both 100% man and 100% God, which adds up to 200%. Mm. And by human reckoning, that doesn't work. So when they started applying the well-developed tools of philosophical reasoning to to Christian belief in the East, um, they would fiddle with that in some way. Um, is, well, is he 99, 44%, 100% God? And what portion of him? And how did the human and the, and the spiritual interact? And you can see how differences would develop. Um, at the first great... Um, heresy of Constantine's period is called Arianism and it's named after a a priest from Alexandria in Egypt which was sort of the intellectual capital of the empire at that time um, argued that uh, if Christ was the son of God that means that 
in some way God the Father preceded him and, I, and the difficulty is you can say this in Greek without using the word time um, but Arianism which is the heresy is usually presented as saying there was a time when the Son of God did not exist and that led to the uh, Constantine to call what is now known as the first ecumenical or worldwide um, uh, council of Christian bishops to resolve precisely this issue. Mm -hmm. And the resolution they came to was uh, um, the word homo usios, of the same substance, consubstantial as, it, as it's uh, said in, in the Latin litur liturgy, one and the same being. Uh, and the, in the East, it was, there was a lot of um, difficulty getting that um, accepted because it's not a, a, a biblical word. It's not, it's not a word that you can find in Christian writings up to that point. And it also uh, seemed to not be drawing enough of a distinction between the Son and the Father, uh, which was a problem with another heresy. So uh, basically, what we now know is the Orthodox Church uh, was Eastern Christianity, and there were constant problems uh, between East and West. Some of them, uh, scholars who know a lot more about this than I do, have, have argued that it it were, uh, it was part of the difficulty was mistranslating the Greek into Latin, so not really understanding each other. Mm. Um, but that became in the middle of the sixth. No, I'm sorry, the fifth century, the Council of Chalcedon, four fifty one. Um, <clears throat> um, made a definitive statement about the nature of the Christian Trinity uh, that led to a major break among Christians in the East uh, be because there were Christians who said God is one and you and you so you can't have two different beings if you're a monotheist um, and a break with the Western um, Bishop of Rome because his own treatment of this problem didn't meet Eastern standards. Um, and, and so there was this slow um, growing apart between East and West, and particularly when um, Eastern emperors wanted to make the Bishop of Constantinople equivalent to the Bishop of Rome. And bishops of Rome had always been very jealous of their prerogative as the heirs of, of Peter and Paul, and Peter held the keys to the kingdom. Uh, so there were, there were these conflicts as well. Mostly it was just the two sides became culturally so different as the centuries passed that they just had very little in common with each other other than the name of Roman. I want to see if we can find a, a point, um, a point that 
can be punctuated then. You mentioned that it's believed that he had his baptism near the end of his life in 336, I believe you said, Mm -hmm. Hal. Um, He had his vision much earlier than that. Presumably, he was a practicing Christian before his baptism. Is there a point in time that scholars believe that he was now a Christian? Well, um, that's an interesting question because I, I, I don't know anybody who tries to put their finger on a specific moment uh, other than the miracle story. Um, and whenever you do try to put it on a specific moment, you, <laughs> you really raise a lot of problems. There's... Mm-hmm. Um, a panegyric that survives just by accident, a panegyric being, meaning a, a speech in praise of, uh, in this case, Constantine, mm-hmm. uh, in which the panegyrist, and this is in Gaul, uh, the year's 310, um, and he's, he says, um, you know, you've got some in with the gods that we mere mortals don't have, and uh, he proceeds to tell a story about how when Constantine was marching, in this case, to a different battle in 310, um, he, he pulled aside to what the, what the speaker calls the, uh, the most beautiful temple in the whole world, where he says, you had a vision of yourself as Apollo, the god, um, and Apollo is offering you uh, crowns for 30 years of rule. Now, and some scholars have said that is the only vision Constantine ever had, and it just became Christianized later on. Mm. Uh, but it's very interesting that we, to me, oh, this is a sign of Constantine's religiosity or, or certainly his belief in in uh, a tight connection with a a divine force and there's a beautiful coin that it's actually a medallion that was issued um uh, about six months after after the great battle for rome in october of 312 Uh, and it has a it shows constantine and the sun god, and you can tell it's the sun god because he's got those, uh, it's, it's like the medieval crown that we like to have, you know, with those pointy things that was originally known as the solar helmet, and that depicted the rays of the sun coming out of this guy's head. So there's the sun god, and there's Constantine in facing profile, and they look identical. Um, and what, what sort of uh, ties this together is that one aspect of the god Apollo uh, is that he was a sun god. And in Gaul, there was a, was a famous temple of, uh, of a local deity who got named Apollo Granus. And it's believed that's where this particular vision would have occurured. Hmm. Uh, Eusebius, you cited earlier, um, wrote, wrote uh, there's record of uh, him 
mentioning that Constantine told him of the vision that Constantine himself had. Is there any uh, other sources of that vision of Constantine seeing the cross in the sky in front of the sun other than Eusebius? There, uh, the guy I mentioned earlier, his name is Lactantius. Um, he was a famous reader, and, and the Renaissance um, labeled him the Christian Cicero because his language was so elegant. Mm-hmm. But he, he wrote a book, uh, more of a pamphlet, really, um, uh, probably around the year 315, so within a couple of years of, of this decisive battle for the city of Rome. Mm-hmm in which he tells a story, uh, not of a vision in the sky, but of a dream in which, um, uh, in which Christ appears to Constantine and tells him to mark this symbol on the seal, shields of his soldiers, and that will win him the victory. So, so that's uh, Eusebius' account is written about 20 years after the event, Lactantius is written within a couple of years, and then that that panegyric that I mentioned is written a couple of years before that battle, but already claiming that that Constantine has got. In fact, there <clears throat> sorry I've gotten mixed up. There's another panegyric mm-hmm. um, just just a couple of months after that battle. Uh, and Constantine's back in Gaul, and this panegyrist um, says, you, you went against this enemy in Italy with fewer forces, and when everybody was telling you not to because you'll lose, obviously, Constantine, you have some contact with that divine mind um, that we lesser beings don't have. I, I made a mistake in attributing that to the earlier vision story but that's where so so you have these three sources two of them roughly contemporary and then eusebius telling the story that he heard from constantine 20 years later okay so during his reign what were his religious policies around around Um, around christianity you know this is this is where uh scholars still debate there's a famous debate about his sense of mission because virtually everything he says and everything he writes talks about how he came from Britain with this sense of mission that he had to uh, control the whole empire. And that is, to my point of view, in, incorrectly called his sense of Christian mission. I don't think there's Christianity at the start of it but Christianity blends itself into that mission as his reign progresses. And, and he has impact in, in a couple of ways. One, I think, with, with the churches that he builds, but also because he is still a Roman emperor. And as a Roman emperor, he automatically believes he has the last word on anything that happens in the empire, including um, religious thinking because he's, he's also the head of the Roman state religion. So he calls the Council of Nicaea, and nobody 
nobody denies his right to do that. All the bishops are are happy to come to this con uh, to this council to resolve the theological question. Constantine doesn't try to resolve it for them, although he participates. Um, mm-hmm. And then he enforces their decision, which is what his big impact is, that prior to that, Christians could meet and they could decide on on what was correct Christian belief, but they had no way to enforce it. Uh, Constantine starts the practice of emperors enforcing Christian belief. A thousand years later, you know, when Protestants uh, rebel against the uh, medieval church, they look back on this as the start of the of the church's undoing when the when the church became involved in in I mean when the emperor became involved in things that he had no right to do so, and that's that's led to a misconception on our part of what emperors did and did not have the right to do at the time of Constantine. So his policy was to encourage people become Christian, but he said, I will not force anybody. Uh, there's a speech of his that, that survives, and it's the longest surviving document we have from the hand of a Roman emperor, <clears throat> in which he sort of lays out his religious policy. Um, and there's also a a uh, a letter that Constantine wrote to the, his new subjects in the Eastern Empire after he took control. And Eusebius puts that in the life of Constantine, in which he says he he says, you know, Christians have got the right thing, but um, uh, do whatever you can to persuade your neighbor. But if your neighbor will not be convinced, leave him alone. Uh, And that's the policy that is present in the document we call the Edict of Milan. Um, Mm -hmm. And scholars argue about about that because it wasn't in the form we have it. It's not in the Edict and it wasn't issued in Milan. But it's an account by the Eastern Emperor of the decisions he and Constantine made when they met in Milan early in 313. And in that, instead of prescribing a deity that everybody should should recognize and worship, which is what Diocletian tried to do, they said, um, and it's called freedom of, you know, it gave religious liberty to Christians, which is true, but it gave religious liberty to everybody, and it said, whatever deity exists in in the field of heaven, uh, we're doing this so that whoever that deity is will, will be propitious to us and to our reign, which is a very ancient way of thinking about, about deity. But in when Constantine moves to the east, and he he sends this letter around. He is saying the same thing. Uh, he's saying Christians are right, but you can't force anybody to believe in Christianity. Um, and that's that's what intrigued me in the in the book I wrote about Constantine the bishops, because the prevailing view up to that time 
was that this was the uh, the touchstone for sincere Christian belief. Uh, Constantine could not have been a sincere Christian if he didn't persecute non-Christians. And so people who wanted to argue that, of course, he was a sincere Christian had to deny that he was tolerant in any other way. Um, and, and that's why my argument has been we should stop arguing about whether Constantine became a Christian because that's undoubted and instead start asking what kind of Christian did Constantine become because the whole argument over sincerity has also been based on there was only one kind of Christianity uh, and at the time of Constantine and for a good many years later there were different kinds of Christians who not only differed in on how they thought about the Christian God, but also thought about how they should relate to the Roman Empire. Uh, and Constantine consistently, when you when you ask that question, he consistently um, threw his support behind Christians who wanted to cooperate with the Roman Empire and make it a going concern. And Christians who said, uh, no, that would, that would taint us, uh, uh, sincere Christians can't do this. He just he just ignored. He didn't want anything to do with them. Do you consider him for its time? Of course. Do you consider him tolerant to other religions? Then. Um, yes. Yes. I, I. I. You know. I think that's the point. Uh, he. He. he to, toleration doesn't mean you accept or even that you support. That's where people get off the track now. Because Constantine says very angry things about pagan belief. He refers to their temples of falsehood. And there are some scholars who pointed to that and say, see, he's, he is intolerant. The correct definition of toleration, as it was formulated by the great uh, uh, English philosophers of the 19th century, and even before, uh, was that it has to be something you don't agree with. And the more you disagree with it, the more you are willing to say that it has a right to exist is the hallmark of toleration. So there's the phrase attributed to Voltaire that everybody's heard. I do not agree with a word you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. That's the correct definition of toleration. So when I say, yes, Constantine was tolerant, I'm not saying he agreed with or even accepted or, even, or uh, wanted these, these other forms of belief to continue. I'm saying that he recognized that the only way for them to, to be... Uh, um, uh, to change their point of view was through persuasion, and you couldn't do it through coercion. And, and interestingly, uh, uh, a Christian named Tertullian, who wrote in the late second century, wrote a thing to the Roman emperor about persecuting Christians and says, you know, it's just not going to work because God knows when people are lying and you can't beat belief into Christians. Um, so it was, 
that 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 first argument is that uh, God can tell when you're when you're telling the truth and when you're lying goes back well before Constantine. I think we got uh, pretty thoroughly into this topic uh, inside of an hour today, Hal. Thank you for coming on the show. Great. Well, thanks very much. I, I really appreciate your contacting me. So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of this episode that Dr. Drake wrote that's relevant to this topic, A Century of Miracles, Christians, Pagans, Jews, and the Supernatural, 312-410, and Constantine and the Bishops, The Politics of Intolerance. I'll drop links to both these books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Hal and everyone listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.